uh, we gathered together around this very familiar text, perhaps the most familiar text of all the Bible, of all the Scripture, um, a few weeks ago. And we considered this question, really our entire conversation was around this question, um, how good is good enough? Um, that uh, really the impetus, the reason for this chapter being included in the Bible, the conversation that, it, that this chapter is really anchored around, um, stem from this question um, that the religious people of the ancient world, uh, religious people of today's world, um, from any circle, any part of the world, um, are all um, just over, you know, kind of... Um, overwhelmed by this question and, and, and preoccupied by this question. Religion has been preoccupied by this question since the beginning um, era uh, of mankind. How good is good enough? How good must we be? How good must we be to please God or please the gods? What must we do to tip the divine scales in our favor? Um, this notion that there is some sort of alt between us and God, some sort of separation between us and God, and there must be something good done. We must do something good to tip the scales back in our favor, to move the needle back in our direction, the ancients wrestled and drew lines in the sand around this question, and many had ideas and theories and understandings about how good was good enough, how good could, did you have to be to get in favor or get in good standing with God. Now, the Jewish leaders, particularly the religious leaders of Judaism um, in the ancient world were no different. Um, they formed an entire subsect of Judaism around getting to the bottom of this question, and this group was called the Pharisees. And if you were to ask in ancient Israel, if you were to ask mirror, mirror on the wall, who is the fairest of them all? Who is the most righteous of them all? The Pharisees, no doubt, would be the answer. And if anyone, if anyone had a chance at being right with God, if anyone could be good with God, if anyone could be good enough for God's standard, it would be the Pharisees. Now, you know the Pharisees because they're sort of this perennial enemy or perennial antagonist in the Gospels, particularly the Gospel of John um, and, and, and Matthew and Mark, not so much in Luke, but we, we see the, the Pharisees as this kind of um, over and over again opposing force to Jesus. Now, the Pharisees were not at all an opposing force in ancient Israel, according to the, if you were a Jew and you were brought up in Israel around this time. The Pharisees were the ones you admired. The Pharisees were the ones that if anybody had, in, had a connection with God, if anyone knew what God was up to, if if anyone could get in with God or have a good standing with God, it was the Pharisees. So the Pharisees were admired. If you saw a Pharisee on the street and you said, hey, Mr. Pharisee, what do we pay you to do? He would say, you pay me to be good. And if you were to ask the Pharisee, how good, or is, you know, how good are you? He would say to you, just better than you. Good enough to make me better than most, somehow to get the attention of God, to bring His favor and His power and His presence back into our community. But the Pharisees tried for ages and they did not make any progress in this goal. The Pharisees went about determined to be good enough, to good enough their way into the kingdom of God and to be this stand-in group for the rest of the nation to bring God back to Israel. But they had no luck in this quest and they kept trying harder and harder and then and then and all kind of the momentum was sucked out of their movement they kind of had a punch to the gut because Jesus showed up and upon many coming and seeing what he had to offer who he clearly was people concluded that Jesus had what the Pharisees were looking for Jesus had the presence and favor and connection to God that they were waiting for and looking for and Jesus was offering it to people that the Pharisees would have never associated themselves with it was undeniable to everyone, that heaven had met earth through the person, the life, and the work of Jesus. And, and, and the Pharisee thought, how could this be? 
How in the world? How does, it, how does he have what we don't? And what do we do? What do we got to do to get what he has? What do we have to do to somehow earn or obtain this connection with God that Jesus so clearly has and demonstrates? And so one of their own, one of the own, one of the Pharisees went to Jesus by night to ask him this pressing question. If we aren't good enough, Jesus, how good is good enough? Jesus, I've tried my best and I've done everything that I know to do, everything the law teaches and then some. How in the world am I not good enough? And if I'm not good enough, how good do I have to be to please God, Jesus, we know that you're a man sent from God because no one else could do the things that you do, but what are you doing that we are missing? And Jesus responded to Nicodemus that night. He said nothing. He said you're not missing anything. You're not, doing any, you're not not doing anything that I'm doing. He says, Nicodemus, you just have an entire wrong understanding of faith. Now, that was pretty offensive to Nicodemus, and he went about it in a more cagey way to Nicodemus. He said, Nicodemus, unless someone is born again, they'll not even see the kingdom of God. Of course, Nicodemus was staring the king into the, in his eyes, and he didn't realize it. But Nicodemus, Jesus told Nicodemus about the new birth. And, and, and to sum up what he told Nicodemus as he revolutionized the entire uh, platform that the Jews had built, Jesus told Nicodemus, we don't behave our way in, we believe our way in. Nicodemus, you have been brought up in a system that says you have to do something to get in. But I come to tell you that it's not about what you do, it's about what you believe. And the key thing being, it's not something that you do, but it's something that God is going to do for you. But Nicodemus could not understand what Jesus was saying. Something God does, I mean, how in the world do you believe your way in? It's all about what we do. And then Jesus kind of completely overwhelmed Nicodemus when he said at the end of his speech or at the end of his conversation, he says, as Moses lifted up the serpent, just as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up. The Jesus, Jesus said, Nicodemus, I have come from heaven to do something that you cannot do, to do something to undo what you've done. I've come to do something for you. You think it's all about what you can do, but God has seen that mankind cannot do anything to help himself or herself. I've come to do something for the world. But Nicodemus, they just didn't have this understanding. They just weren't raised this way to see the world that way. They didn't understand God that way. And Jesus makes a claim about himself that would throw Nicodemus completely off guard. Jesus claimed to be the one coming to do the work that we could not do, to undo the bad and accomplish the good. He says, this is going to be done so that whosoever believes in him should not perish, but have, receive eternal life, or in Him receive eternal life. Nicodemus could not grasp any of this. They believed. They believed that there was a Messiah that was coming, but they believed that there, if there was a Messiah, it would merely be a good person who would rise up to do a good work. Their understanding of the Messiah was much like how they understood the kings of the Old Testament. David was a messianic figure because he rose up from the, 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 you know, kind of the unknown of Israel and became a savior to the nation. David was a picture of the Messiah, and most of the Jews, most of the ancient Jewish scholars believed the Messiah would just be a normal man who would ascend to some great place or some great stature by doing something good, and his good work would model for the rest of the world that if you do what this guy did, you'll get in with God too. But that's what the Jews understood about a Messiah. Messiah would come and do a good work, and if you did the same thing, if you followed in his footsteps, if you lived under his rule, you too could get in with God. But it wasn't that they didn't have this idea of someone coming from heaven. They had no concept for an incarnation, no concept for what Jesus had come 
to do. And of course, at this point, Nicodemus really wasn't sure who Jesus was or what he was. But he would tell you for sure, the idea of someone coming from God to do something good once and for all, that was crazy. The idea that there was going to be a Messiah coming from God to do some good work that would be so good, that would be good enough that it would once and for all reconcile people to God? The idea of believing in Him? The idea that all you got to do is believe in what He did for you? And the idea that you can belong before you behave? That just wasn't Judaism. And honestly, that just wasn't any religious system. Nobody in the ancient world had a category for this. It was radical. It was crazy. And and that's exactly what Nicodemus would go on to see with his own eyes, though, as he would follow Jesus from there. And eventually he he would get to the cross where Jesus was indeed lifted up, the only good, bearing all of the bad. And Nicodemus knew that day the answer to the question, how good is good enough, is that Jesus is enough. How good is good enough? Jesus is, was, is, and will always be enough. Jesus is God's standard. But hear this. He is God's standard lifted up, not for us to aim for, but for us to trust in. You hear that? Jesus is the standard of God. He is the righteousness of God. He is the only accepted one under God. But He was lifted up not so that we might aim for and be like but to trust in. Salvation is not in modeling or imitating. Salvation is found in trusting in, believing in, putting your faith in Jesus and what He did for us. You read that and you think, wow, that's almost unbelievable. That's almost too good to be true. What kind of God? What kind of God would do that for those who have rebelled against Him? That could never be true. I mean, how in the world you read the Old Testament and even the stories of the understanding of God that we read in the Old Testament doesn't give us the idea that there is a God who would do something like this for people. And for that reason, John, who again saw all this and lived all this, would go on to write one of the few editorials in the Gospels, as in he responds to what we just read. He responds to the narrative. And in response to the doubt, in response to, I'm sure, what many people thought, that just can't be. I mean, Nicodemus even said, how can this be? In response to the skeptics that would say, God isn't like that. And God just would never do that. It doesn't make sense. It doesn't fit into how we understand the holy God of the Old Testament. John writes and gives us a bit of perspective. For God so loved the world. John says, I don't know if you know this or not, but God's entire motivation, God's entire, uh, the place that God is responding to, the place that God is responding from, rather, the way God is addressing the world is from a place of love. And maybe you don't know this, and maybe you never heard this, and maybe Judaism didn't teach this, and maybe your religion has not taught this, but I believe, and I'm teaching, and I'm proclaiming, and I'm setting out there that this is all coming from a place of God so loved the world. And this should reframe the entire entire understanding you have of God. This should reframe how you look at the Bible, how you understand God, how you understand your relationship with God, how you understand the universe for God so loved the world, not God was so angry with the world, not God was so fed up with the world, not God was tolerating the world, or God said, I'll make a deal with the world. God loved the world, so He gave His only begotten Son. Here's the thing. We will never be able to comprehend the love that moved God to do this. Nobody in there, nobody 
under heaven has the ability or the comprehension or the wherewithal to stand up in a place like this and try to define God's love because it is impossible. It is intangible. It is beyond our understanding. But John says, I can just try to describe it for you. God so loved the world. How much did he love the world? Or in what way did he love the world? He loved, he gave his only son so that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. That is the heart of God. If you want to know who God is, if you want to know what God is like, look at the gospel. And if you can't explain Genesis, if you can't explain Exodus, if you can't explain Chronicles, if you can't explain the prophets, if you can't explain the epistles, if you can't explain Revelation, that's okay. Look at the gospel because it tells you all that you need to, that you need to know. God so loved the world that He did something for you. He gave something for you. He gave someone for you so that you might would trust Him and have everlasting life because of and through Him and Him alone. John clarifies and says, For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world. Maybe you're confused. Maybe you've heard this presented in a different way. But I want to make it clear. God did not send Jesus to condemn the world. The world was already condemned without Jesus. God did not send Jesus to double down on the condemnation. He sent Jesus so that the world might be saved. Isn't that what it says? So these two verses define the gospel. These two verses define God in the only way that a human can understand God, the best way we could possibly comprehend Him. John 3, 16 and 17 anchors the incarnation as in the coming of Jesus. Don't even get to the cross. John 3, 16 and 17 anchors the incarnation, the coming into the world of the Word of God made flesh. John anchors the incarnation in God's love. And if you can start from that place, I think we can rebuild. I think we can get to where we need to be if we can agree on that. That's the starting point that we need. We need to begin with. Don't ever think, don't ever think that Jesus came to expose, to only expose sin or to judge sinners. Don't let anyone twist the gospel into being about that. Jesus is not God's gavel that condemns. He is God's mercy seat that saves. That's what John is trying to say to us. Listen, the world was condemned without Jesus, and the world didn't need Jesus to show up to be condemned. It was already condemned. But through Jesus, the world might be saved. John makes it very clear that Jesus is the only way. Isn't that what it says? Not trusting in Him means condemnation. John is saying that any and all who are apart from Christ stand condemned. Verse number 18. He who believes in Him is not condemned. But he who does not believe in Him is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. So what is the clear message from John? That apart from Jesus, there is only condemnation. That sort of statement is very, may very well prompt some questions and concerns about those who have not received Christ, those who have not heard about Christ, those who have gone on after other ways. John is pretty authoritative here, right? Apart from Christ, you're condemned. In Christ, you are saved. God was driven by His love to do something for the world that was separated from Him, a world that was funneling down to hell everybody, a world that would continue to do so if not for an intervention. 
All the Old Testament history, all of history in general, has led up to the New Testament where God's love has been put on full display. The situation was so dire and urgent that Jesus came to die for us to take judgment on Himself that we deserve and were destined to bear ourselves in hell and are destined to bear ourselves in hell apart from Jesus. John tells us that salvation is only by faith in the name of God's only Son. It can't be stated any more clearly. The situation is eternally dire apart from this. And that is why there's a great commission, right? That is why it is so important, right? And from the cross forward, from the cross forward, we can conclude that we are without excuse, not because of what we know or don't know, but because of what God has done. And the cross and the resurrection of Jesus makes everyone and anyone without excuse before God, because God has done something to reconcile everybody. And here's the thing. No longer do our sins separate us from God. We are not separated from God because of our sin anymore. You don't go to hell because of your sin anymore. We are separated from God because of unbelief. And Jesus says, John tells us that by faith we are saved. Because sin has already been taken care of, according to this text. Jesus was condemned for us. He died for us. He paid the penalty for us. The debt is no longer outstanding, so nothing separates us other than, rather than, unbelief. So the question is, do you believe? Have you trusted in? It's a question everybody has to wrestle with. Everyone has to answer, and that's the question that separates any of us, or stands between any of us. And God, let's look at verse 19. Through 21, John continues, This is the condemnation that the light has come into the world and men love darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. For everyone practicing evil hates the light and does not come to the light lest his deeds should be exposed. So John explains why we still resist the gospel and resist the the message of Jesus. But he who does the truth comes to the light that his deeds may be clearly seen that they have been done in God. So John is kind of describing the difference in someone who accepts Christ or rejects Christ. If you reject, you continue to practice evil and you resist the light. If you accept Christ, if you believe in Christ, we understand that God has done something in us, right? That they have been done in God or they have been done because of God's change or the change in our lives that God has wrought. So John tells us that faith in the name of God's only Son leads to something different. Trusting in Jesus leads to a transformation through Jesus. Faith in God leads to God within us. And the works that we can't do, the good that we could not do, we can do through Jesus. And the bad works that we were prone to do, we can abstain from because of Jesus. According to verse number 21, that's the clear distinction of a Christian, that we have that ability to do the good. We have the ability to abstain from the bad. Faith is not passive, but it's powerful and it's passionate. And you may say, if the way is that clear and exclusive in Christ alone, then that means the odds of people dying apart from God are pretty high, aren't they? That's absolutely right. I mean, think of all the people who have not heard. Think of all that need to hear. It's urgent, isn't it? And if verse 9, 19, and 20 read like I read them, and the evil that people do exposes the lostness of their heart, then there are a lot of people in our world that don't have Jesus. There are a lot of people in our churches that don't have Jesus. It's urgent, isn't it? That's why the New Testament church doesn't waste any time. That's why we should not waste any time or waste any opportunity. And this leads us into the next passage. 
that is multi-layered, the narrative shifts back to John the Baptist to two different layers, two different results concerning our mission and concerning our mindset after we've been saved. So with that in mind, let's read verses 23 through 26 as we get kind of back in touch with what John's been up to. After these things, Jesus and his disciples came into the land of Judea, and there he remained with them and baptized. Now John was baptizing in Anon near Salem because there was much water there, and they came and were baptized. For John had not yet been thrown into prison. So John's continuing his ministry, pointing people to Jesus, and this baptism was a way of repenting of their sins. So John was continuing this, and then the Scripture tells us, Then there arose a dispute between some of John's disciples and the Jews about purification. So John was always buttonheads with the Jews. He was continually um, kind of getting in the face of the Jewish leaders and their religion and telling them it wasn't enough, that Jesus was the one true way, that they needed to come away from that. And he was leading people there. So kind of in this scenario where they're having this argument, then verse 26, and they, we don't know who they are, but there's always a they that comes to start trouble. It's just we don't need to know who they are because there's always going to be one, and we just need to know what they're up to. They came to John and said to him, Rabbi, he who is with you beyond the Jordan to whom you have testified, behold, he is baptizing, or his people are, and all are coming to him. So we kind of get this, it's kind of a change of subject, but it's going to come back around. We get this group of people that come to John and say, John, 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 you were the hottest guy in town. You were the most popular guy in town. Your movement was growing. It was booming. You were popular. You were making money. You were making friends. You were so, so, so famous. Everybody loved you. Everyone came to hear you preach. Everyone joined your movement. And a couple of months ago, it just stopped, John. I mean, you can't pay rent anymore. I mean, you can't even, you don't even have big crowds anymore. I mean, now you're out here in the middle of nowhere and you've got a few people that are coming to you and as soon as they come to you, they leave and go to him. I mean, John, you know, are you doing okay, buddy? Rub it in, right? I mean, John, you know, we know that you started the first Baptist church of Jerusalem, but hey, now there's a second one down the road and it is so much bigger than yours. And come on, John, nobody can just sit there and let it happen and and not feel bad about it. Of course, you're a little bit discouraged, aren't you, John? Of course, you're a little bit bummed out, aren't you, John? I mean, aren't you thinking about quitting? I mean, I'd quit if I were you. And I know how to talk like this because I'm a preacher. I get people talking like that sometimes to me. That's a joke. Y'all never talk like that. John, you're old news. And these new guys in town, I mean, hey, that guy was just a carpenter. I mean, you went to school. You're professional. You shouldn't, you know what you're doing. Your dad was a priest. I mean, John, you are expected to be in this business. And some kid came out of Nazareth. He doesn't even have a degree. He doesn't even have a reputable you know, background. You know, other than that, you baptized him and you commissioned him. And now he's the next best thing since sliced bread. John, are you okay? And John probably thought, well, now that you're done talking. Every preacher would do well to read this next passage every single day of their ministry. Everybody, honestly, would be well to read this passage every day of your life. And John responds. And this is why I believe the Bible is inspired, because nobody would respond like this. In their own flesh. Nobody would. I wouldn't. I would get angry and walk away. But John says, a man can receive nothing unless it has been given to him from heaven. John says, I hear you. I hear you. I'm, I used to be cool. Now I'm not. Nobody likes me anymore to make fun of me. My sermon's no longer, nobody buys my sermon, watches my YouTube videos. Nobody quotes me anymore. I know I'm old news. I get it. What we have and who we are, it's a gift from God. And I had a good thing going for a while, guys, but guess what? 
God took it back. Are you okay with that, John? John, how's that sit with you? Can you handle that? And I think John would look at us and John would say, John tells us everything that comes from heaven, everything that we receive is from God and it can be given and it can be taken. And John would say, how does that sit with you? Can you handle that? Our lives and all that we have, all that comes along with them, are a stewardship. And John identifies his purpose, his stewardship. It was a way to serve a very specific purpose. Look at verse 28. You yourself bear me witness that I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. I was sent to make a way for Jesus. You mean that's your entire purpose, John? Yeah, that's my entire purpose. You act like that's a little thing. I was sent to make a way for Jesus. He who has the bride is the, he who has the bride is the bridegroom, but the friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly because of the bridegroom's voice. And John's like, people are like, John, John, are you trying to say that Jesus got the girl and you're left out and cold? And you're trying to say that someone in your shoes usually is happy for the other guy? I mean, John, I don't know about that. I don't think that you can just say that everybody who ends up watching somebody else get what they wanted, what you thought was going to be yours. I mean, John, nobody in their right mind is going to stand there and celebrate somebody else when they got what they thought was going to be theirs. But John says, no, no, no. You rejoice greatly because of the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is fulfilled. And people are looking at John saying, John, are you serious? Are you making this up? Are you pretending? Are you okay? You can be honest with us, John. And John is being honest with us. I have been fulfilled and I am celebrating that Jesus got what was mine and believe me, he's getting a lot more. What if this is true for all of us? What if every day our role is to make way for Jesus? What if that is the purpose of every single day of our life? You say, what am I supposed to live with the assumption that Jesus might show up one day and say, hey, I'm going to do something through you? Am I supposed to live that any minute of my life Jesus might walk in and say, hey, this is about me, not you? This is about making me known through any given moment? Am I supposed to live every minute of my life as if Jesus might want to make himself known through my words, my actions, my opportunity, my work, my scenario, wherever I'm at? Am I supposed to live in such a way that I'm always ready to give the stage to Jesus when it's supposed to be about me? Is that how I'm supposed to live, Justin? Kind of. Why is it that way? Well, if you're saved, you know why. Because apart from Jesus, we're lost. And if we're blessed enough to know Him in salvation, we ought to be, we'll be compelled to make it all about Him. To the point of spreading the good news, and, and i got to ask you this question because this, will be, this pertains to our previous conversation. we got to wrestle with this question. Should every Christian be concerned about evangelism? Is this just for some? Is this just for those who are in ministry? Aren't there so many factors, personalities, moods, and settings? Here's what I know. We're all called to love. We might not all speak the same language. We might not all have the same skill set. But we're all accountable to, and in whatever ability we have, we're all called to love one another. There's no excuses for that. And we're called to love because Jesus, His love for us and His love for others. So yes, we should all be concerned about evangelism because our love for others, anything, if anything, communicates God's love for them and ultimately His desire to have them and, 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 and save them. Consider this that Paul wrote in Colossians. For the sake of His body, the church, of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God, 
that, I, that was given to me for you. So Paul's saying, hey, this is, my, this is why I'm here. I was made a steward of, of God. I was made a steward of the church to send a message to you. To make the Word of God fully known, the mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now it's been revealed to you. You're the saints. We're the saints. That God revealed something to you that you need to know. To them, the saints, God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery. So here's what Paul's saying. Through you, through the church, God chose to make known to the Gentiles, to the pagans, to the unchurched. God chose to make known to the world through you, Christ in you, this hidden mystery. Him we proclaim, warning everyone, teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone. So you get the picture here? All of us have been commissioned to reveal Christ to who? Everyone. So it doesn't matter. It is not just for some, right? It's to everyone, everyone, everyone. For this, Paul says, I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. Why does he work it within me? To make him known to everybody. So it's pretty clear, isn't it? We are called to make Jesus known through every aspect of our life. If Christ is in us, he will wire us to live after God's desire. The closer we get to Jesus, the closer we'll get to his mission. A heart that's close to God won't forget what is so close to the heart of God. Amen? Now, sometimes we don't see ourselves in this field. We don't go about making a big deal about it, but we just don't like other people expecting us to do something that we just don't want to do. And I hear you, but John's words ring louder than ever. And this is not just about evangelism, but it's about representing Christ, which of course is evangelism. We have been sent forth before him, for him. This is bigger than just evangelism. It's about exalting God. Here's a little secret, though. If we exalt God in everything that we do, we will lead plenty of people to Jesus. I'm not judging anybody, but could it be that we don't direct a lot of people to Jesus not because we fail to preach the gospel every day, but because we fail to exalt God in everything that we do. Because the way I read it and the way I believe and the way I think you believe, if we exalted God in everything that we did, people would eventually see Jesus. And they might not believe. We can't make anybody believe. But they would be confronted with a Jesus that they could not ignore. If we live from this place, what glorifies God, we will, be, we will do plenty of good that benefits others. And we all know what glorifies God. Kindness, generosity, sacrifice, serving one another, loving one another, giving, doing for one another. Standing for what is right at the, at the expense of maybe loss to send the message. And John is kind of coming to this conclusion in verse number 30, and he kind of sums it up like this. Hey guys, y'all want to know my M.O.? You want to know kind of where I'm going from here? He must increase. And for him to increase, I've got to decrease. So when John, is say, when John says he must increase, but I must decrease, he's, he's, he's saying this. For him to increase, I've got to decrease. There's no, you know, you can't have one or the other, right? You can't have one without the other. I have to decrease in order that he might, and so that he might increase. How did all this start? 
Jesus was getting more attention than John. And that bothers some of us. It bothers some of us. John became a footnote to the story of Jesus. And he was okay with that. John's not trying to say that his life is less important or your life is less important, but rather that God, for God to get the proper glory out of any of our lives, we must surrender to God's will. That's what that verse means. He must increase, so I must, or I've got to decrease, so that he must increase. That's what Jesus taught us, or how he taught us to pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed or exalted be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, as in I'm in the way, God. And I'm welcoming heaven to come and take my place or remove what's in the way, which is me, my will, and my kingdom. So God, I'm exalting your name over my name. I'm asking your kingdom to come and take place over my kingdom. I'm asking your will to be done in place of my will being done. For the kingdom to come, to, for the will to be done, we've got to surrender our earthly kingdoms and our earthly wills. And in our world today, we get so hung up on being somebody, making fame, making a name, even co-opting Christianity to do it. In a way, the world works. No doubt, some will be famous. Some will be more famous than others. Someone's always going to be famous. A lot of things factor into that. But, ma- but th- what matters is, Whatever fame you have, defer it to Jesus. If it's just a little bit, there are those who get bummed out because they feel less important than others. But hear me clearly, the Word clearly shows us that our life is purposed for God. No one is more important than another. But from His perspective, you matter as much as anybody because you've got to do what you can do with who you are and what you have to make way for Jesus in your life. But for those with a lot of fame, the more you get, the harder it is to give away. But none of us are safe from this temptation. None of us have a desire to see ourselves decrease. Now, everyone, I think, would say, I want Jesus to be exalted, but we don't always jive with the way it can be done or the way it must be done. We like it when others think well of us or, or, or think big of us or think wow of us. We don't want to decrease. Nobody wants to decrease. It's just not our nature. In our flesh, in my flesh, we want to, I want to increase. But John 30, 30 beckons with, 3.30 beckons to us with the notion, uh, beckons to us, when the notion crosses our mind, how can I increase? We must challenge that with how can Jesus increase? When something comes in our minds, what can I do to become greater here or to get more here or to have what I want here? We must challenge that thought. How can Jesus increase? get greater or increase here. We live in a if you're not first, you're last society. In many ways, our minds have been warped by culture. If we're not winning, we're losing. But don't let politics or culture or religion deceive you. Being second to Jesus is the most joyous place you could ever be. John says it in verse 29, there's more joy. There's more joy in being second to Jesus than being first in anything. And there's something about our nature that says, I don't know about that. There's something about our nature that says, isn't there a version of Christianity that lets me be first too? 
Isn't there a version of Christianity that allows me not to deal with this kind of negativity that someone that I feel like you're putting in front of me, Justin? I don't know how God wills you to be second. Maybe through a choice you need to make. Maybe through a person you need to serve. Through a mission you need to obey. Whatever it is, whatever you do, put Jesus first, even if, especially if, it means putting yourself second or even last. If we believe the Bible is inspired then we believe that John is not lying to us in verse 29 when he says, my joy is fulfilled. We, ne- we don't know what it's like. We don't know if our joy can be fulfilled because I say most of us have never been at the place where John was where he completely meant, I must decrease so he might increase. And John says, take it from me. There's joy on the table. And if we believe the Bible is inspired, then we believe what Jesus said in Matthew 6 is true too. Seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. And most of us have never, ever, ever sought first the kingdom of God as we should. So we can't say, well, not not everything wasn't added to me. Because most of us have never sought the kingdom truly first. But according to Matthew, according to John, according to John the Baptist, and according to Jesus, if we do this, then we will not lack anything, and we will not be lacking, especially when it comes to joy and fulfillment. You know what we can conclude from this? And what I hope that can linger over your mind from this? If Jesus isn't first, we're at our worst. I don't think you want that, do you? John said, I, think, I know y'all think I'm hitting the bottom, but guys, I'm just starting up the ladder. He goes on and says, He who comes from above is above all, but he who is of the earth is earthly and speaks of the earth. He who comes from heaven is above all, though. And what he has seen and heard that he testifies, and no one receives his testimony. He who has received his testimony has certified that God is true, and those who do believe that Jesus is God, we affirm that he is the only way. For he whom God has sent speaks to the words of God, for God does not give the Spirit by measure. John wasn't sad or disappointed at all. He was happy as he had ever been. And you might say, again, why? Because there's more joy in being second to Jesus than being first in anything. First in anything is always fleeting. You're always competing. You're always striving. You're always drifting. You're always slipping. Nobody stays on top forever. From trying to maintain our image, engaging in this or that. But Jesus has been first and has been king for 2,000 years. Everyone who takes... Second place under Jesus' rule comes in first place in every area that counts. 35 and 36. The Father loves the Son, has given all things into His hand. He who believes in the Son is everlasting life. He who does not believe the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abides on Him. If we want true life, we'll let Jesus rule and we'll trust in Him. After all, Jesus is enough. And Jesus is best. And second best to Jesus, that's good enough for anybody. Take it from John. Let me pray for you. Father, I love you. I thank you for this word that you've given us tonight. Thank you for the reminder that being second to you is the best place we could ever be. Submitting to and finding rest under your rule is the secret, is the key to finding peace and joy forever and ever. Father, I don't know where your 
boy, this lands on the hearts of your people tonight, but God, I know we all kind of resist that notion of being second. We all resist that notion of decreasing. And Father, may we challenge the flesh. May we challenge our notion to say, what's in it for me? By asking, what's in it for Jesus? And not, how can I exalt me, but how can I exalt Jesus in this? And Father, according to your word, we can bet on this. We can lean on this. We can depend on this. We can take you for word on this. There's more joy to be found in being second to you and decreasing for you than there is any other way. So Father, we trust you. We put our faith in you. And we ask that you might would show us the way this week to say like John said, I must decrease so that you might increase. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.